Welcome to Lakeshore. We are so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome to Smyrna Campus. We're glad you guys are with us. Anybody connecting with us online, we're glad that you have found us that way. Uh, we are excited today to begin a brand new message series called The Gift. And it is, of course, a Christmas message series. And it really focuses on and helps us focus on what this season is really all about. There were these two boys that were spending the night with their grandmother uh, at her house, and they had had a fun time playing there that day, but it came time for bed, and they knelt by their beds to pray. And one of the brothers started out really loudly exclaiming, Dear Santa, I want a Nintendo Switch. And he paused for just a moment, and he yelled it out again, Dear Santa, I want a Nintendo Switch. One more time, really loud. Dear Santa, I want a Nintendo Switch. His brother finally punched him and he said, what are you doing? Santa's not deaf. He said, no, but Grandma is. <laughs> when it comes to gifts, this is a time of year, of course, where we are focusing a lot on trying to think through and pick out gifts for people that are important to us in our lives. And we try to figure out what would be a good gift. I know my wife, she's the planner in our family. You know, I plan way ahead. I always plan to shop Christmas Eve afternoon, sometimes night. That's how I plan. But, but my wife has been planning and getting ideas, you know, and texting family members, you know, what do you think this person would like? What is this person wanting this year? And she's been planning and we do decorating. I want to thank our, our staffs at both campuses for decorating the campuses and getting them to look so beautiful this holiday season. They, they do a great job with that. All this preparation going into it, trying to determine what's the best way, what's the best gift, what's the best way to celebrate, and, and it really focuses around this idea of giving gifts. And of course, we know traditionally uh, what most people believe is the gift-giving tradition started from the story of the wise men who came bearing gifts for the Christ child. And I think it's a great tradition, except that sometimes we get it mixed up, don't we? The gifts were really for whom? for Jesus and his family, not for us, not for each other. But we can honor him this way, and it's a fun thing, and there's nothing wrong with the decorations and the giving of gifts as long as we keep it in balance. I just did a whole series, remember, on uncommon sense about financial responsibility and stewardship, so we've got to make sure we keep this in line and really prepare for it like we should. If we prepare properly, this can be a lot of fun. But if you don't prepare properly... This can be one of the most stressful times in somebody's life. Oftentimes, the holidays also bring up the emotions of having lost a loved one during this time of the year, and it just re-stirs up and rekindles those feelings of loss. I mean, there are a lot of things that can rob us of the joy of this time, but, but if we can prepare properly our hearts and our minds, our finances, all the things we need to prepare, then we can make this gift-giving thing something that brings great joy to us and to others. But what I want us to really focus on here in this series called The Gift is what Paul exclaimed in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 15. In 1 Corinthians 9, in the series I just finished, we talked about how he taught us to be generous as followers of Jesus Christ and how he was encouraging us to, to think through it and plan it and do a good job with this and to give cheerfully. But then in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He connects that with our motivation for being generous people is to remember how generous God has been with us and giving us the greatest gift that has ever been given. And in this series, we're going to examine what it meant for God to give his indescribable gift to us, the gift of his son and life through his son. And today we're going to begin the series by looking at the preparations that God made to give us that gift that first Christmas. You see, while we're in the middle of all these preparations, we forget the preparations that our Father had to make to give us this indescribable gift that we celebrate at Christmas. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we are reminded of something about how God prepared to give us this gift. It says, beginning with verse 4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. That phrase, when the set time had fully come, is a powerful phrase. When you understand all that is included in that phrase. I mean, in that phrase are all the preparations God made throughout all the ages leading up to the time that that baby would be born in that manger. And sometimes we don't think of it as, as all the things leading up to it. We focus so much on the event that we forget about the preparations for the event. Sue Ann and I are going to be hosting our staff Christmas party tomorrow night at our house. Sue Ann is great with plans. And she's got great plans for the party. And I get to help execute the plans. <laughs> so I know all that's involved in her plan because I have to help get those things done leading up to the execution of the plan. And it's just a great reminder for me as I was preparing this message series that that just pales so much in comparison to all that God did to prepare for this gift, the celebration that we call Christmas. So let's look at five areas of preparation that God did for that first Christmas, the giving of that gift that we have, that indescribable gift of his son. The first area I want us to see of preparation is preparation through prophecy. God prepared for this event through prophecy in, in his word and through his prophets, and now we have it recorded in his word leading up to the coming of Jesus. Uh, we oftentimes think of prophecy in a lot of different ways, but just one element of prophecy, it's not the only element, but one element of prophecy is foretelling something that's coming, something that's going to happen. Now, prophecy involves a lot more than that. It's, it's communicating God's message in every way to God's people and to the world. But part of that communication is foretelling some things that were going to come. And I know we get caught up a lot in our culture with, with reading horoscopes and going to fortune tellers and people like that. And the Bible warns against that, says that that's evil and we don't need to have any connection to that or any part of that. We need to stay away from that completely. I understand why, because you can start putting your trust there instead of in God and his word. But in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 7, he said this, Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? What does God's word say about human beings? None of us can do what? 
tell the future. He's talking about human beings that by our own power, by our own wisdom and insight, we can't do that. We're, we don't have that ability. We're, we're, not, we're not able to foresee those things that are yet to come. Now, we can make intelligent guesses. We can gather information and predict some things that we have a chance of getting right, but we're not really in control of that at all. And because we're not in control, we can't do this as accurately as we would like to think we could. Even with all of our technology and all of our ability to resource, resource facts and information, we don't always get it right, do we? Just think about the weather forecast for a moment. Okay? Just think about that. With all the technology we have, satellites all over the place, beaming down information to us, we can see the movement of the patterns of the weather systems and all of that, and we still miss it sometimes, don't we? Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the fact that we can do some of that, and we can, we can get some, some good indication of what might be coming and what might be happening. That's a good thing, so we can prepare, especially for, for events that might be life-threatening and things like that. It's good that we can have some of that, but it's not totally accurate. A seven-day forecast can accurately predict the weather about 80% of the time, seven days out, with the technology that we have today. At least that's what they tell me, the weather people tell me. <laughs> My experience hasn't always been, I think, 80%, but seven days out, they say they can predict it with 80% accuracy. That means 20% of the time they're wrong. All right, 20% of the time, they don't have it pinned. They don't have it nailed down. And if you get past seven days, it becomes less and less accurate in their predictions past seven days. Now, some of you read the Farmer's Almanac, and you think they predicted it 20 years out, right? And, and they, there are some general predictions that might come true with that as well. But it's not as accurate as we'd like to think either. When they put it to the test, it doesn't have that greater accuracy rating. So we need to know that we, in our, of ourselves, by our own power, don't have the ability to predict things very accurately. Uh, but scripturally, we have some prophecies, predictions from God's word that have proven themselves to be accurate at the level of 100%. You see, that's the difference in human beings doing it and God doing it. And when it comes to what we celebrate as the coming of Christ, that gift, we find that the prophecies of scripture are 100% accurate and 100% fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The very first prophecy in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. First one recorded in Scripture. And it's after mankind has rebelled and fallen into sin by eating the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. And they were deceived by the serpent. And God is speaking to the serpent about the consequences of the fall. And he says this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, in that prophecy, there wrapped up some things that are at that time could not be, I'm sure, understood at all by Adam and Eve and by the early uh, human beings and uh, getting this information. They couldn't quite understand what all that was talking about. But when you look at that prophecy in light of what happened through history leading up to the coming of Jesus and then his death on the cross, you can see how this was a prophecy about how 
the one God was going to send through the woman, was going to be injured by Satan and the work of Satan, the cross, but that the one who came through this woman was going to have ultimate victory and crush the head of the enemy who had hurt him. Uh, you can see that he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing about this prophecy, too, there's another element here that is really interesting. I can't preach on it today because of lack of time, but here's what it says. It says, between your offspring and hers. And in that culture and in the writings of Scripture, almost never did they trace it through the woman leading up to something that was going to happen in the future. Almost always they would trace it through the father of the child. But in this case, it specifically mentions her offspring. I believe that's a prophetic look to the virgin birth of Jesus, that it was through the woman that God brought the child without a human father fathering the child. So uh, the, the prophecies began very, very early on. And, and there's so many prophecies. Uh, another prophecy about this idea of the virgin birth is in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We know the word Emmanuel means God with us. So, so Isaiah the prophet says a virgin is going to conceive and have a child and it's going to be God with us, this child is. Looking ahead to the coming of Jesus through the virgin birth with Mary. Uh, the place of his birth is prophesied in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And that phrase in the Hebrew from ancient times means before time. That the origins of this child actually start before we record time. Isn't that amazing? You see, the Scripture says the Word was God, with God, created all that was created, but the Word became flesh. You see, He already existed long before this world was created. He was God. But it says He would be born on the earth in what town? Bethlehem. Looking even further down in prophecy and in the history of, of the life of Jesus, the method of his execution, it said he was going to be killed, and it even described a method of how he was going to be killed. In Psalm 22 and verse 16, it says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now, that's an interesting description. You don't find that description of any execution of that time period ever. You know why? Because crucifixions didn't exist yet. In fact, it was over, it was several hundred years later before the first crucifixion was ever recorded in history. And yet already it's spoken of as piercing his hands and his feet, describing a crucifixion form of death. Now, there are critics of these prophecies who say, well, well, what happened was they, they went back and wrote these things into the manuscripts after these things happened. But here's the problem. That argument is totally null and void because the manuscripts are older than the events that we found by hundreds of years older than the events that are recorded. You see, they could not have been written in later. They were written way before the events took place. Now, I just mentioned a few of them. There are over 300 messianic prophecies in Scripture, over 300, all of which are perfectly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. 
Now, the, 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 the mathematicians who figure out chance, right, they, they, the people like who work at Vegas right, to, to give you the odds on things happening, they use formulas to figure out what's the chance of something happening. And when they use the formulas that they plug in, the chances of even eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person's lifetime is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I don't know if you know math very well, but one in 10 to the 17th power is exactly a lot. <laughs> it's a whole lot, okay? In other words, the odds makers would say this is an impossibility. That's just for eight of them to have been fulfilled in the life of one man. There are over 300 of them that are fulfilled in the life of one man. Now, the, the possibility that that could have happened by chance, by random chance, is zero. It's zero. God orchestrated every one of those details. He planned it all and made sure it happened the way it was supposed to happen so that we could know his power, his wisdom, his love, his preparation to give us this gift that we celebrate in the life of his son as our Savior. So he prepared, first of all, through prophecy. Another way that he prepared for the coming of this gift was through the law, the giving of the law. We don't often connect those two things, but listen to what he says in Galatians 4 and verse 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, why does he make such a big deal about him being born under the law? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons for it, and we don't know all of the mind of God, but one of the ways that's important is how it helps us see the preparation that he made for the coming of Jesus at the time that he came. He had established a nation of people that we now know as the nation of Israel, and he had given them the law to follow, and we misunderstand the law a lot of times. We think sometimes God gave us the law to make us good people, right? He says, here's what you do. You follow these rules, and that makes you a good person. Now, that sounds good in theory until you understand that it was impossible for us to do that. Why would he give us that standard of perfection to get us to be good when, in fact, we could never do it? That was not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to reveal to us our need for a Savior. You see, the law, if we followed it, would help us be better people, but, but we could not live up to the perfect standard of the law. Some translations say the straight edge of the law. When something's crooked, you can't always tell how crooked it is until you put it up against what? A straight edge. When you put it up against a straight edge, then you can see how crooked it really is. And the straight edge of the law reveals to us all the imperfections of our lives. Now, he didn't do that to discourage us. He did that to teach us how in his love, even with our imperfections, he would be willing to provide what we needed to be made perfect through the sacrifice of his son. You see, he prepared through the law. Paul speaks of this in Romans 3, verse 19. He said, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We realize we're sinners. Now, there are people that we tend to judge in our worldly standards who are good people and some that we consider not good people, bad people, right? And, and sometimes we make ourselves feel better by comparison with people who aren't as bad as us. For example, if I don't want to feel too short, I get, you know, Stanya Campbell or somebody to stand beside me, right? <laughs> somebody shorter than me. And, and it makes me, you know, compared, I don't feel short, right? And then I, Mike Schwartz will walk up beside me. And all of a sudden, I, by comparison, realize I'm really short compared to Mike Schwartz. Now, here's the deal. We can feel really good about ourselves until we look at the standard of the law. I've done this test many times. If you take even just the Ten Commandments, just ten. Now, there are hundreds of laws, but take just the Ten Commandments. And you go through the list. And if I were to do this today and ask you to raise your hand and go through all ten of these, not a one of us would have our hands still up at the end, having kept them all perfectly all the time. Just ten of these laws. Not a one of us has kept them perfectly our whole lives. You see, when you put your life up against the straight edge of the law, it makes us conscious of our sin. And our sin makes us aware of our need for a Savior because the wages of sin is what? Death. And because of that, we have no hope had God not in His grace prepared to give us this gift that forgives us of our sin, that cleanses us of our unrighteousness and allows us allows us to be seen perfect in his eyes. You see, the Bible says when we're baptized into Christ, we are clothed with Christ. The reason that's such a big deal is, is we stand before God naked and unclothed by Christ, then our sin is still there. But if we're clothed with Christ, what God sees in us is not our wickedness and our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. And that's our only hope for salvation is the righteousness of Christ. In Romans 5, Paul went on to say this, verse 20, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, I think this could, verse could be taken two ways at least. And one is, uh, you know how we in human nature, when somebody says, whatever you do, don't do that, what are you inclined to want to do? To do that, right? It's like you're walking through a park and you've passed that bench a hundred times and never thought about it, but you saw a sign on it that said wet paint. What are you going to want to do now? Touch it to see if it's still wet. You know, is the sign there still there for a reason? Is it still wet? You're going to try it out and see. And the law has some of that effect on us too where it says you don't need to do it this way. And we're thinking, I'll prove to you I can do it, right? We have that rebellious, sinful nature in us to want to do that. But I think there's more than that. I think what it means is, is it really uncovers sin that we would not have even thought about when you look at the teachings of the law. When you really look at it in detail, we, we, we're laid bare before God in our sinfulness. 
But the good answer to that is God's grace abounds even more when those things are laid bare. His grace is more than enough. No matter what things are uncovered against the straight edge of the law. And that's why his preparation to give us this gift is so powerfully important in our lives. So he prepared through prophecy and the law, but he also made preparation through sacrifices. The sacrificial system that he set up in the Old Testament was part of preparing us for the coming of the one ultimate sacrifice that would be sufficient for our sins. In Hebrews 9.22, the author says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God being the holy, righteous God that he is, the perfect God that he is, he requires payment and punishment for sin. And the payment, remember, the wages is death. The shedding of blood is symbolic, connected to the idea that death for sin is the connection that he wants us to make. And payment for sin through the shedding of blood. And so he established in the old covenant the system of sacrifices. But these sacrifices under the old covenant, if you go back and read or you've already read and you know the history there, you know these sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again. And the reason is they weren't sufficient to remove sin. They rolled back the punishment, but they didn't eliminate. They didn't remove the guilt of sin. They just delayed the inevitable punishment that would come if those sins weren't paid for in full. But he was teaching us through all the giving of these sacrifices, all the preparation that had to be made, and how the sacrifice needed to be a certain sacrifice, done a certain way, uh, the perfect lamb, right, the one without spot or blemish. All these instructions about the sacrifices were leading up to the coming of that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice that would not just delay punishment but would remove the guilt of the sin. There's a, a great example of that in the Old Testament where God was teaching us about the perfect lamb that would come. It's the account that we know now as the Passover, and the Jews still celebrate the Passover today as Jewish families. And it remembers something that God did. Remember, they were slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt, the Israelites were, and God brought the plagues, and he had Moses go before Pharaoh after each plague and said, let my people go. At first he would say, I'm going to do it, and then he would back out and not let them go. But finally that final plague that was coming was what we now know as the death of the firstborn. And the death of the firstborn was more widespread than most people realize. They think of babies a lot of times with the death of the firstborn, but it's the firstborn of any age in a family. It could have been a 90-year-old person but he was the firstborn in his family, that would bring death to that person too. And it was the animals as well, not just the people, the death of the firstborn. It was across the board. They were all going to suffer from this plague, the death of the firstborn in that family. But God instructed his people to do something to protect themselves, to be, to be uh, kept from the harm of this punishment. He said, what you do is you take a lamb. Into, he said, bring the lamb into your home and keep it for four days in the house. Then take that lamb and slaughter it for sacrifice and take the blood from that perfect lamb, that unspotted, unblemished lamb, 
and smear it over the door frame, the outside door frame of your house. And on the night that the death angel comes by, he will look at the door frames of the houses and any home that had the blood of the lamb on it, the death angel would pass over that house and not bring death to that home. And it happened just like God said it was going to happen. And that's when Pharaoh decided to let the people go and give them their freedom from their slavery. Can you see in this how that was leading up to teaching us every time they remembered this event, they were reminded that in order for them to escape the punishment of death because God wanted to save his people, they would have to be covered by the blood of the Lamb to get their freedom from the plague of death. You see, God was preparing us the whole way through. Now, here's the amazing thing. Why did God have them keep the lamb in the house for four days, you think? I've got a lot of theories, but one of them is this. What do you think would happen to them and the lamb over that four-day period? Do you think they would attach, get attached to the lamb? Any of you taking in a stray, right? You taking in an animal into your house? Uh, some of you, I don't know if you qualify as a cat lady or not, but some of you might be, right? You just tend to collect animals in your house. But you get attached to them, right? And then... The kids in the house, what are they going to have with this lamb now? They've got this affection now for this lamb, right? And then what do they have to see happen? They have to see that lamb sacrificed. And it would break their heart to see that. And it was teaching us the price God had to pay that he would have to let his own son, whom he loved, be slaughtered on the cross for our sin would teach us to appreciate more deeply the sacrifice that he made and the giving of the perfect lamb. And every year as they remembered the Passover, they would remember they had to eat bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery. They had to eat unleavened bread that represented sin in their lives and leaven represented sin, so they had to get the sin out. It, it reminded them every time the price God was willing to pay to protect his people from sin and death. In Exodus 12, it records all of that for us, and it says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike, when I strike Egypt. So Jesus was born under the law, and it, the law required sacrifice, blood, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Now, I want to look ahead to Luke chapter 2 when Jesus has been born. And it says the time of purification had been completed for Mary after the birth of the child. The law required then that they go and dedicate a firstborn male child to the Lord. That's what the law required. Let's look here in Luke 2 verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the Lord of the law, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. And then it says a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now here's the thing about the law. It did allow for that. But it first of all said a lamb from your flock without spot or blemish. 
But you know what God in his compassion did for his people? He knew that some families were going to be so poor that it would be hard for them to come up with a lamb for this sacrifice, especially right after the birth of a baby. And so Mary and Joseph weren't required. It didn't have to be a lamb. They could instead do two doves or two pigeons as the sacrifice. And I think God is speaking to us again through the law and through the prophets saying this sacrifice is for everyone. I don't care how poor you are, how rich you are, what your station is in life. This sacrifice is for everyone. It pays the price for everyone for their sin to purify you before God. He came for all people. So there's preparation through the sacrificial system. The fourth area is preparation through what we call types. Now that word types, we don't use it a lot in our uh, terminology today very often, but a type was a, a person or a place or event in the Old Testament that was pointing to a better fulfillment of that in the New Testament. Uh, like the Passover was a type of what was coming that was going to be even better than what happened then, talking about the coming of Jesus, right, as that lamb for us. There was a type in the Old Testament, one of them, there's a lot of them. One of them was, uh, I believe, that uh, Isaac was a type a forerunner for Christ when he would come. Uh, think about it. In Genesis 22, it says, Sometime later, verse 1, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, Take your son, listen to the terminology, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Think about all the connections with what happened with Jesus. Okay, just listen to this. Okay. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will prepare, will provide the lamb. Can you see how that foreshadowed and pointed ahead to what God was going to do with his son, Jesus? You see, Isaac, his birth was a miraculous birth to begin with, right? Abraham and Sarah were well beyond childbearing years. So it was a miraculous birth. And then Isaac was their only son together whom they loved. Jesus is the one and only son of God. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross. The sacrifice took place on a hill, a mountain. Jesus carried the cross to Mount Calvary. The Father had the instruments of sacrifice to execute the sacrifice. And God the Father was the one who, who sacrificed his son for us. He did indeed provide the lamb for the sacrifice. You see, that was a type or a foreshadowing of what God was going to do through his son, Jesus. Well, he prepared not only through the sacrificial system and through 
the types that he had established and in his dealing with his people. He also prepared, finally, preparation through world events. And this is the one that just so blows my mind every time I think about it. It just so amazes me because I, we, we don't even know but a small part of this, I'm sure. But, but there's some elements we do know that were playing into this idea. Remember the scripture says, at the set time, when it was fully come, when everything was right and prepared. You know how when you have a, a big event, you have to set a time for it, right? You have to set a time where that's the beginning. That's when it's going to happen. That's when, so the preparation has to lead up to the set time for the event. And this was the most important event in the history of the world. And God set a time for it. And everything up till that set time was preparation time for the event for that event that God was preparing for the whole time. And when the time had fully come, the scripture says, timing is important when you're going to give a special gift, right? My wife loves it when I share this story. She's sitting right over here, and i got to look this way. <laughs> when we were dating and I decided I want to ask Sue Ann to marry me, I decided it long before I did it, but when I decided that set time had come, it was the right time. I want to tell you how much of a lover I was. I sold my drum set to buy her ring. All right, I'd been playing in a band and had this nice drum set, and I sold it. Got a lot. It was an expensive set, and I got a good bit of money for it and bought her this engagement ring. And I had it in the box from the jeweler. And I had a car, even back in the dark ages, that had power seats, okay? Had an electric power seats in it. And I put the ring behind the seat, and I picked her up and said, we're just going to spend some time together tonight. And I drove out in my little hometown to a romantic spot. It was not, looking back, a romantic spot at all. But we drove out to this romantic spot, and I was going to pop the question. And I wanted it to be just perfect. And so I hit the power button on the seat to let my seat back so I could reach around and grab the ring. And I ran over the box with the power seat and I couldn't get it out from under it so now I'm pushing the seat back and forth try, trying to be smooth right <laughs> get the pot get the ring out I finally get the seat far enough up I can get the box and I put the seat back again and I, the box has been crushed shut now I can't even open it I mean I'm prying and I'm just trying to be cool right trying to make this the romantic perfect time you know Finally, I just ripped it open, tore the box up, and gave her the ring and asked her to marry me. And in spite of that, this woman said yes. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's amazing. Amazing. Over 43 years ago. Amazing. Um, but here's the thing. Even with all of our planning, we don't have enough control to make everything work the way we want it to work, do we? We can plan and plan and plan, and, and, and inevitably something will go wrong, right? I haven't done a wedding yet, by the way, where everything went right exactly the way they planned it, ever. So if you're asking me to do a wedding, you might want to rethink that if you're thinking about Because there's always some little something that goes wrong. Um, my daughter's wedding, 
were having it at, at this church building, and uh, they were going to have communion, and I was supposed to get the communion elements out there on the table for them. And before the service started, I realized I had not put the communion elements out there. The prelude's already going. People are being escorted in and all that. And they had this little modesty rail on the stage at the church. You know how those are? I crawled under behind the modesty rail, and you could see my hands with the stuff. Putting the communion elements up on the table. Right? No matter what planning you do, you think you got all the details worked out. Something doesn't go right. But here's the thing. God planned all of this to give us this gift, and it went exactly the way he wanted it to go. It was fulfilled in every detail. But let's look at world events at the time. Timing is so important. Culturally, in the world, something had happened that was really important. 300 years before Christ was born, there was this guy named Alexander the Great who had conquered that part of the world and, and had established this, this expansive kingdom there. And he was the greatest military conqueror of, of history that we could tell. And, and he had control of a lot of area. And you know what he did? He made Greek the official language of that whole known part of the world. Now, you might think that's no big deal. How does that connect with the birth of Christ? Here's the thing. The New Testament is originally written in Greek. And everybody in that known part of the world could understand Greek or find somebody who could read and understand Greek because it had been so well established over that whole known part of the world. How would that help in spreading the gospel? I mean, everybody could read it and understand it or had somebody in their family that could. Right? One of the biggest challenges we have today in spreading the gospel is translating it into language, uh, language groups that don't know it, don't have it yet. They could all understand it immediately, the words that were written as they recorded the New Testament. And not only that, but since that time, uh, another 100 years later, the Roman Empire took control. And one of the biggest things they did was build a system of roads and political control of those areas. Uh, Jesus was born at a time that in history is known as the Pax Romana. You know what that means? It was the time of peace where the Romans ruled. There were no conflicts in the world, military conflicts between nations at the time Jesus was born and at, for the years immediately after he was born and after he was crucified, they were still under the Pax Romana. You know what that means? Missionaries could travel freely over all those Roman roads and go from one country to another and cross borders without any threat in the initial spreading of the gospel. When the time had fully come, when everything was set, when everything was right, that's when God sent forth his son. Spiritually, there was preparation too. Judaism had also spread all over that known part of the world so that people had access to the Jewish scriptures. One example of that, remember in Acts 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the eunuch had come from that area of the world to Jerusalem to worship the one true God because Judaism had so spread out already all over that part of the world. And so when he was traveling back home, the spirit led Philip alongside the chariot and he talked to him. And you know where he read from? He read from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He said, I don't understand who the prophet's talking about. Can you explain it to me? You see how God laid it all out and had it ready for Philip to be able to tell him how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies that were spoken of 800 years before in Isaiah. It's amazing how God worked out every single detail to bring us this gift that we celebrate, the Christ child. 
Romans 5 and verse 6, Paul said it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, your being here today is a part of God's plan for just the right time for you. If there's anybody here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, anybody listening online, you've never understood what God has done for you, but now you get it and you're ready to receive it. Here's the amazing thing. Even with all the preparation to give you this gift, there's one step left. You have to be willing to accept it. You have to be willing to accept what God has done for you and respond to Him in the way that He wants you to respond. You see, at just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for you. He died for me. And he spoke through the prophecies and the law and the sacrifices and the types and the world events. He did all of that. He planned and he orchestrated all of this. The Bible says he did it before the foundation of the world. That's how much he loves you and he loves me. But you have to decide, do you love and appreciate him and what he's done for you? For God so loved the world, he so loved you that with all that planning and preparation, he gave his one and only son, that whoever, that word whoever means you, me, and everybody else believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been reminded today, just scratching the surface, I'm sure, of all the preparation you did to give us this indescribable gift of life, life abundant, life eternal made possible through your son Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Pray that if there's anybody who needs to take a step of responding to your invitation to accept the gift into their lives, that today they would take that step, that they would come repenting in faith, they would be obedient in baptism, and they would rise up to that new life that you prepared to give them. Father, for those of us who've already received it, help us to have a greater appreciation for all the preparation you did for every one of us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.